0: We don't need a whole lot more conferences. We need a whole lot more accountability.
1: Welcome to Meet the Leader, a podcast where top leaders share how they're tackling the world's toughest challenges. Today's leader, Dr. Andrew Steer. He is the CEO of the Bezos Earth Fund, and he'll talk about nature, why we need to protect it, why it's key to tackling climate change, and what's needed to make that a reality. Subscribe to Meet the Leader on Apple, Spotify, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review us. I'm Linda Lucina from the World Economic Forum, and this is Meet the Leader.
0: And if we lose nature, we lose our futures.
1: Once upon a time, this world hosted six trillion trees. That's now been cut by half, and the Amazon according to experts, has entered into a downward spiral such that in one hundred years, those lush rainforests could become savannas. Nature is in peril, and if we want to tackle the climate, we must protect nature. To find out what must be done, this week we talked to Dr. Andrew Steer. He is the CEO of the Bezos Earth Fund, a philanthropic organization started with $10 billion commitment from Amazon's Jeff Bezos, all to fund scientists, activists, NGOs, and others to drive climate and nature action. He'll give us an understanding of some of the risks that we've been facing, and how we can reverse course, including how philanthropy can play a surprising and untapped role how a new initiative launched at Davos this year will aid in exactly that. He'll also tell us what real change will really require, from the many transitions that must happen simultaneously and the mindset shift we'll need to make now. He'll get into all of that. But first, he'll get us started with an explanation of 30 by 30, an initiative where governments around the world designate a third of Earth's land and ocean as protected by the year 2030. I'll let him get started.
0: Well, 30 by 30 is 30% of the land and the sea will be protected by 2030. And that's uh, important because we currently are not protecting it. Maybe we're protecting about half that amount right now. The problem with that is we are losing incredibly precious ecosystems which is not only a tragedy in terms of losing species, and we're losing species at a rate over a thousand times as rapidly as would happen naturally if it weren't for humans, but it's also a tragedy for future generations because 70% of the economy depends upon nature one way or the other. And if we lose nature, we lose our futures.
1: What does that before and after look like if we don't make that Twenty thirty uh, 2030 timeline.
0: Well, look, um, it looks bad. Yeah. Uh, the the thing about nature is that when you lose it, it's not a linear thing. So you know we've lost so far. You think about it. Um, there used to be you know six trillion trees in the world. There now are three trillion trees. So you can say, well, a few billion here or there wouldn't make any difference. Human beings are now using 70% of the land for their own economic purposes. Sounds good, our economy is generally doing well. The problem is if you keep taking more and more natural ecosystems, you can get bad things happening unexpectedly. So for example, in the Amazon right now, scientific experts are deeply worried that we're starting to see the beginning of a negative spiral, which would mean that the Amazon, if we go much further, won't stay as it is. It will get into a downward spiral whereby 100 years from now, it could be Savannah. Weather systems would be totally different. Water flow would be totally different in a totally unpredictable way and almost certainly in a very bad way. So so what one needs to do is to have some sense of responsibility, not to take too many risks.
1: To give people a sense of sort of what we, what we can protect. Uh, you were recently in the Andes in the National Park. Tell us what you saw there uh, and what it was like to be sort of walking through there and what you were thinking about.
0: Well, as you fly from, I mean, obviously, Colombia is one of the great biodiverse countries in the world. It has, you know, oceans on both sides, on the Pacific, on the Atlantic. It's got incredible species richness. As you fly from, let's say, Bogota, the capital, you fly in a plane or a helicopter to the the southeast towards Chirubbacchetti, which is where we went, which is one of the most untouched places on the planet, is the most stunning um, features. You see this sort of, if you like, the frontier, and you see uh, just a total loss of forest. And looking down, you will see the occasional cattle. And what happens is that um, people go in and they cut the forest. The land tenure legal system is not entirely clear. They put a few cattle on to give themselves some legitimate ownership, even if they don't have any. The average cattle has more than one and a half hectares each. In fact, you could have four cattle on a hectare if you managed it well. As a result, you've got this incredibly low productivity and an encroaching sort of forest frontier where year after year after year. And we now have technologies in the World Resources Institute, which I used to be the the president of. We we had something called the the Global Forest Watch. And it can not only use satellites and it can see trees falling And the good news is those satellites have been up there for the last 20 years. So you can reverse the clock and you can show from the year 2000, year by year, forest falling further, further. If you don't have 30 by 30, if you don't have rules, it would just keep going and unstoppable because however well-intentioned any government is and a country like Colombia is a very full of very competent officials and, and and politicians, they can't stop that, no country can. Um, and so you need just a, a really disciplined approach where you have regulations, you have indigenous people on board, you have NGOs on board, you have scientists monitoring, you have satellites, creating accountability and so on. So it's a complicated process, but a very, very exciting time right now.
1: What needs to happen to make nature a bigger part of the climate crisis conversation so it doesn't get drowned out?
0: There's very good news on that. Uh, And by the way, the World Economic Forum here has played a very important role over the last four or five years. I mean, five years ago, it was all climate. Nobody really, and so there was a feeling, well, nature's important um but there wasn't this recognition that actually if you want to solve climate you've got to protect nature uh, basically protecting nature will address one third of everything we need to do on climate if the other high, if the other two thirds are sort of energy transition and so on and, and cities but what's happened in the last 5 years is the sort of the coming together and COP 26 in Glasgow really sort of brought those two together and then of course in Montreal last November um, when they had the, the Conference of the Parties for the Biodiversity Convention, that's when the world agreed to 30 by 30. And that was a very, very hard fought battle. There's a high ambition group. Uh, a year earlier, there were only 50 members, 50 countries that were signed up. We then sponsored it in a big way yeah. to support, so did others. And then it got up to 120 countries. And then in the negotiations, they managed to take, you know, be persuasive to the others. So it's really impressive. And what we had to do was demonstrate that if a country does commit to this, there will be resources to help them do it. Because sometimes there's a real trade-off. I mean, if you are running the Democratic Republic of Congo or you're running Ecuador, there are mining interests, there are oil and gas interests that want to go into your pristine forests and they want to take it out. And certainly in the short term, that's very beneficial for the economy of a country. And so we need to demonstrate that we are going to be supportive. So what we did last year at the Bezos Earth Fund, uh, we worked with uh, 10 other philanthropies. So we were able to make a commitment of $5 billion to support countries that are willing to implement 30 by 30 and that Together with, you know, other processes led to a sort of an openness to change. Cause it's not, it's not right for environmentalists simply to preach at countries and tell them you must do this or that. You've got to go the extra mile and demonstrate that we're there to help. And that often means money.
1: There's a, that kind of leads me to the a uh, climate philanthropy initiative that is uh, launching this week at Davos, uh, the Gaia. Um, how important is climate philanthropy, uh, you know, to make sure that you know we're we're uh, kind of tapping every resource we can to, to fund solutions?
0: Well, I think I think philanthropy has um, has uh, risen to the occasion much more re- much recently compared to earlier days. I mean, still only two percent of all philanthropy goes to climate mitigation, and maybe an equivalent amount to nature. Um, so at one level is small, but another level it's, you know, it's, it's billions of dollars a year. So you actually can do quite a lot with that. And so what the World Economic Forum is doing together with some of us is uh, creating this um, network, if you like, where we ask the question, how can philanthropy not only be increased but how can it be used in a a really disciplined forensic sort of way that will lead to real leverage? So most philanthropy has been sort of dollar in and a good dollar of output out. So you build a school or you build a clinic. That's really good. You don't change the system. And so we spend a lot of our time at the Base of Earth Fund thinking about how do we inject funds and our influence and our conveniability. ability? How do we do that in a way that actually unlocks a lot of more resources? So so and you can get leverage through obviously helping to de-risk private investment. You can get leverage by uh, persuading governments to change policies. You can uh, get leverage through political pressure. You can get leverage through monitoring and accountability systems. Or through research, you, so there's a whole range of sort of interventions. And what we do at the Bezos Earth Fund is ask the question. So what are the big transitions that are required this decade? And there are about 50 of them actually, you know, getting rid of the internal combustion engine, protecting 30% of the land reducing um, food loss and waste by half this decade. It's about 70 of those, uh, 50 to 70 of those if you add them all together. We monitor those using something called the system change lab. And we try and monitor how close are those transitions to a positive tipping point, after which change becomes sort of irresistible and unstoppable. And then we ask what are the barriers that are preventing whatever transition it is getting to the tipping point. And that's what the Gaia is gonna try and do. It's gonna try and bring philanthropists to the table, relevant ones, bring governments to the table, bring corporates and scientists to the table, look at various transitions that are required, bring decision-makers who can play their part of the jigsaw puzzle, if you like, And so that's the idea, and we're we're quite hopeful that it might work. We're gonna experiment, we hope, with some real problems in the coming year.
1: Tell me a little bit about the Energy Transition Accelerator and the new methodologies that are going to go forth with uh, carbon
0: credits. Potentially exciting, yes. uh, potentially risky. Sure. Carbon markets have, have had a checkered history, especially when it comes, for example, to nature. 15 years ago, there was the great hope that so-called red plus, which was about protecting forests, um, uh, you know, that that the rich companies mm-hmm. that were finding it too hard to decarbonize within their own Companies, they would pay uh, for the protection of forests. Um, Didn't work.
1: Uh,
0: It didn't work for two reasons. One, the quality of the projects was very variable and there was no accountability. There was no monitoring. Um, And number two, um, it became clear that a company can't simply say, I'm not gonna work on my own problems at home. I'm simply gonna pay, you know, $3 a ton to Indonesia to protect. So it failed and and carbon markets went into a slump for a decade, really. In the same time, domestic carbon markets, even in states in the United States and certainly in Europe, uh, were, were doing okay. What, what the story now is that there is a real willingness on the part of companies to come to the table with real money. But here's the thing. They don't bring real money in order to compensate for their own failure. In other words, they don't, they're not allowed to bring money to the table because they have no interest in addressing their own uh, carbon emissions. They have to get their own carbon emissions in sync first with what's called science-based targets. So that's what we call the demand side has to be right. But then on the supply side, you've got to make sure that the quality is high. So what the uh, Energy Transitions Accelerator tries to do is ask the question, isn't it interesting that really nobody is working on using some of this high quality carbon, voluntary carbon credit money to address very difficult issues in energy. For example, we need to close down 925 coal powered electricity generating plants every year between now and 2030. The money for that simply doesn't exist. But if we don't do that, we won't be able to address that get the 1.5 that we need to get. So Sen- uh, Secretary Kerry of the United States and um, the, the Bezos Earth Fund and the Rockefeller Foundation agreed that we would, um, we would coordinate a movement bringing the very best experts from carbon markets all around. And there are, there are a lot of them, there are a lot of institutions that are working on this Um, to the table and try and set standards that are high by the middle of next year, and then start mobilizing some funding to address some of these very difficult energy uh, projects. The reason it's risky is that those standards need to be high. But if we don't try this, it's even more risky because then there'll be simply no money. I mean, at the moment, as you probably know, there's something called the JETPs, the Just Energy Transition Programs, partnerships. South Africa started one, Indonesia now, Indonesia's, um, you know, received commitments of $20 billion. South Africa had $8.5 billion. Actually, that money, number one, needs to be mobilized. And number two, it's not enough. So we need to think much more ambitiously and we need to do it quickly.
1: How have you changed? As a leader, you've had many roles in your career. Uh, How have you changed, you think, from the beginning to now?
0: I think I started very much as a technocrat. You know, I did a PhD in economics. And in those days, luckily, economics is changing. In those days, we believed that human beings were rational and uh, could have their behavior influenced um, pretty dramatically by economic policies. We believed that free markets on their own um, were pretty good. They certainly needed to be tweaked for various reasons, but we didn't really understand the human side of things. So the, I guess I've changed in the sense that that at the end of the day, future progress will depend as much on the things of the heart as the things of the sharp penciled head analysis, so to speak. So I think that would be one. I think i have become what perhaps In earlier eras, I would have called more fuzzy in my thinking. I now call it just much more thoughtful, more realistic, recognizing politics, recognizing power struggles, recognizing the massive imbalances in the world, the unfairness and injustices that unless we address, we will not be able to solve the problems that I wanna devote my life to solving.
1: Um, in a year with so many crises happening simultaneously, uh, what should leaders prioritize?
0: Um, Delivering what they promised. So we're now actually in a good position. On the nature side, we've got commitments for 30 by 30. That's gonna be very hard work. Keep your eye on that. On the climate side, it's remarkable most countries now most of the economy of the world is committed to net zero by 2050 130 trillion dollars of financial assets under management have committed to get to net net zero these were wild commitments i mean uh, unbelievable commitments um and cop 26 if you like codified them we now need to deliver them we don't need a whole lot more conferences we need a whole lot more accountability and it's very tempting to say, my goodness me, this is a dreadful time for the world. Criminal invasion of, of Ukraine surely should deflect us from the nice to do things of climate change and nature. No, Ukraine illustrates the dependence on Russia that Europe had, illustrates why we were so foolish in the first place. Be, to be dependent upon fossil fuels that have sat under the ground for billions and millions of years um, in foreign countries that are not very reliable, totally untrustworthy. Why should we do it? Why not generate the electricity on your own land for free? You know, You think about it, all energy comes from the sun. There are two ways of getting it from the sun. You can have the sun create biomass that then goes underground for three million years, and then you go down there and Bring it up in the form of coal or oil and gas, or you can have it directly today from the sun today. Which makes more sense? Um, there are more jobs in the latter. There's uh, this cheaper in the latter. It's much healthier. So um, so what we need to do is is deliver. That's the that's the story. I believe.
1: That was Andrew Steer. Thanks so much to him, and thanks so much to you for listening. A transcript of this episode. And my colleagues' episodes, Radio Davos and the Book Club podcast, is available at wef.ch slash podcasts. This episode of Meet the Leader was presented and produced by me with Juan Toran as studio engineer, Jerry Johansson as editor, and Gareth Nolan, driving studio production. That's it for now. I'm Linda Lucina with the World Economic Forum. Have a great day.